morning, church. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to be here this morning, grateful to have voices to express praise to you, grateful now to be opening our Bibles and to consider your word written to and for us, and we pray that as we do so, you would help us. We are eager to hear from you. We have a deep sense of our need for you to speak to us, yet it is likely the case that that we do not know how deeply we need your word. It is likely the case that we do not know how deeply we need the book of Hebrews as much as we have longed to study it. We pray that in the coming minutes you would impress upon us how deeply we need it, how deeply we need the Lord Jesus Christ, how deeply we need to cling to Him in these days. And so we pray that Your Holy Spirit would use Your Word to have Your way in us. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. This morning we're going to get a feel for the overall message of the book of Hebrews. And we'll just begin by reading the first couple of verses of chapter 12. So if you would stand with me, we'll read these couple of verses. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You may be seated. There are 66 books in the Bible. 66. And over the last 15 years, every time we have been about to begin a new sermon series, there has been one that has been mentioned over and over as people have expressed their desire to hear a particular book. One mentioned over and over. I hope it's this. I hope it's this. It is always, almost always, Hebrews. There is not a close second. Not even Romans. Never did I hear Leviticus. Never once. (laughs) Never. 
But Friday night when we when we mentioned when we when we announced Hebrews, there was literal cheering. Why? Why? What what, what is all all the the wonder with the, the book of Hebrews? Why the hype? I think there are two reasons. Two reasons that we want so desperately to study this book together. The first reason is the high Christology of Hebrews. That is, Hebrews teaches from the Old Testament amazing truths about Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plan to save. And that excites us because we love Jesus. And maybe all the teaching about Jesus is why we've wanted to hear this book preached. But as we're so excited about the book, are we aware that that high Christology serves a very practical purpose beyond just teaching Christology? The author of Hebrews did not sit down and recognize, wow, these people have a low Christology and we need to fix that. So I'm just going to write something like a systematic Christology, and, and, and we'll fix that. that is, that's not it. He saw in the people around him something else. A very dangerous, very common problem. And the Christological teaching in this letter is one of the means by which he set out to address that something else. In other words, the purpose of Hebrews is to address something other than a low Christology. And that something else is intimately related to the second reason so many of us long to hear Hebrews preached. But I'm going to break one of the cardinal rules of preaching and I'm not going to give you that second reason. At least not yet. In this overview sermon, we're going to work our way toward that second reason, and we'll get there at the very end. We're going to get there in four steps. And the first step is that the Christian's situation is hostility from the world. The Christian's situation is hostility from the world. If we read closely, we can find some clues that prompted the author to write. And if you missed a blog article yesterday, you'll You'll find there, if you look on our blog, you'll find why I'm calling the author of Hebrews just the author. What was going on in the lives of the readers? Turn with me, if you would, to chapter 10, verse 32. In 10.32, we, we read this. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. We can pick up some clues here about what's going on with the recipients. What is the situation? Broadly speaking, we could say hostility from the world. After they were enlightened, that is, after these recipients had followed Christ, they endured suffering in the form of, one thing is reproach. That is, non-believers around them were ridiculing them, insulting them. 
Another thing that he mentions is affliction. That's just a broad word that refers to any kind of harsh, harsh treatment. They also were watching their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ endure this kind of thing, which as you know can be worse. When you love someone, you'd rather endure pain yourself rather than watch those that you love endure that same kind of thing. Some of them were imprisoned. Some of them were enduring the plundering of their property. That is, people were just taking their stuff simply because they had followed Christ. Now turn with me over to 12.3. 12.3. Here the author is pointing to Jesus' example of endurance, but these couple of verses give us a clue as to the extent of their suffering. Hebrews 12.3, consider Him, meaning Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The only thing we want to glean here is just the the high point of their, their suffering has not yet been facing death for their faith. So they have they've endured hostility from the world, but none of them have yet been martyred. So there's a broad array of things happening to these people because they've followed Christ. And our inclination in our modern period, especially here in, in the West, may be to say, well, yes, certainly they are enduring persecution, but that isn't our situation. We have not yet endured the confiscation of our property. We're not being impre- imprisoned. We're not enduring this. We're not enduring that. But I would venture to say that there are some among us, some of you may be even thinking about this right now, some of you have recently, maybe even this week, endured hatred from people in various ways strictly because you have named the name of Christ or because you have been faithful to Him in some way. Severity of hostility from the world toward the church, it has ebbed and flowed since the time of Jesus, but it has never disappeared. Never. And if we think about it, we have to agree that the world is hostile toward the church right now in varying degrees depending upon where we live on the earth. Many of us right now work for companies pushing ungodly agendas, and and some among us, some of us have had these conversations. Is my commitment to Christ going to jeopardize my standing with my employer? Some of us have talked about questions like, how am I going to handle it when my boss says I have to wear a pride t-shirt? I've had this conversation with my son in the last two weeks. What am I going to do when my employer mandates listing my pronouns on my bio? What am I going to do about that? How many of us have a strained relationship with a, a family member, or a coworker, or a neighbor because we have shared the gospel with them or expressed a biblical position on a social issue or have otherwise acted in faithfulness to Jesus in a moral or ethical situation? When you, when you think about those question, questions, you, you realize that the hostility from the world is much broader than just the things that the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews were facing. We, we won't even consider social media today and 
Hollywood and the government in their lopsided treatment of Christianity versus other religions. You don't see other religions today portrayed and treated the way that you do Christianity. In this culture, Christians are bigoted morons who must be silenced. And, and, and I don't mean to whine about it this morning, I just want us to realize that, that there is hostility in this world toward Christians today. Most of the troubles that, that we have, most of them, we have in common with all people, whether they're believers or unbelievers, simply because we're descended from Adam. And, and those troubles are things like our, our bodies are wearing out, sin causes us troubles that we wouldn't have otherwise, and we have loved ones that die. And those are troubles that we share with everybody, whether they're believers or unbelievers. But we have one problem. One problem that we have simply because we have followed Jesus, and that problem is that the world hates us. And Jesus said it would be this way. John fifteen nineteen reads, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The situation of the Christian is hostility from the world, and that hostility creates an atmosphere that is ripe for a particular kind of temptation, which brings us to our second step this morning, which is that the Christian's temptation is to shrink back from faithful discipleship. Faithfulness in following Christ. The Christian's temptation is to shrink back from faithful discipleship. And what we find if we read the letter to the Hebrews closely is clues that the author recognizes signs that among some of the recipients, there may be those who are shrinking back from following Jesus faithfully. Not all of them, but some of them. And that shrinking back represents a danger to them. There's a progression in this shrinking back that we can find. What we might think of as a, a spectrum of shrinking back. You, you, you see, shrinking back is, is not just one class of people that are just teetering right on the edge of saying, you know what, I think I've, I've changed my mind about this Jesus thing. Jesus actually isn't the Christ. That is not the only class of person that the letter of Hebrews is concerned about. That is not the only class of person about whom we might say they're shrinking back from the faith. There's a spectrum. There are degrees of shrinking back. And likely many of us in this room this morning will find us ourselves somewhere on that spectrum. One end of the spectrum is in that passage that we looked at a moment ago in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. You might glance back there now. 1032. When he says, recall the former days, when he says, recall the former days, he's not saying, hey, remember when it used to be bad, but it's not that bad anymore? What he's saying rather is, remember how you used to respond to bad treatment? You formerly endured. You formerly were compassionate to others. Formerly accepted this treatment with joy. Formerly looked to a better inheritance. What he's saying there in 1032-34 through is, do that again. In other words, he's seeing some among the recipients who aren't responding well to the poor treatment of the world. 
perhaps some of us can identify. Maybe you're not taking the blows quite like you used to. The hatred of the world is beginning to take its toll on your heart and the joy of of bearing the reproach of Christ is gone. Compassion for others who are suffering the same thing, that that, that compassion is waning. In, In other words, there is a lack of enthusiasm about suffering for Christ. Lack of enthusiasm about standing firm in faithfulness to Jesus in the face of hostility. That is a warning sign that you are shrinking back a little further over on the spectrum. Go with me now to, to 10.24. 10.24. We see another sign. 10.24 reads this way. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a little clue right there in the middle. As is the habit of some. He says, Now, what is the habit of some? What's the habit of some that he's concerned about? Some are neglecting to meet together for the purpose of stirring one another up to love and good works. Now, I'll argue when we get to this passage that, that what he's pointing to is not merely that there are some who are failing to show up for worship on Sunday mornings, but rather he's calling for believers to engage in meaningful discipleship relationships outside of Sunday morning worship, which is an absolute essential for a growing Christian life. It is the habit of some to neglect discipleship relationships outside of Sunday mornings. And perhaps these people, they're they're now finding their comfort and help in in things outside those relationships inside the church. They're, they're, They're filling their time with other things. Perhaps some of us are doing that. Perhaps some of us are telling ourselves, I'm just too busy to meet with other believers. I've said this before, it may have been a while, but if we are too busy to meet one-on-one with another Christian, we are literally too busy. And something needs to go. If you're not meeting with other believers you are shrinking back from faithful discipleship and you are in danger. This is a progressive thing now and it gets worse. So so we might expect there to be more dangerous signs in the book of Hebrews and there are. If you're not meeting with another believer, odds are you are well on your way to the next stop if not already there. Turn to 5.11. 5.11. In 5.11, the author is about to embark on one of the denser parts of his letter, but he pauses to write something else. He has to pause to write something else. Beginning in 5.11, he says this, about this, about this denser thing that I want to write to you about, he says, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, 
For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. See, the pressure of the world, it seems, has hindered these readers from pressing on toward maturity. They become lax in the spiritual disciplines, particularly going deeper into the Word of God. And as a result, they are immature for their age in the faith. You see how this thing is, is, is a progressive thing. L- lack of joy in standing firm, and then, and then ceasing to meet with other believers for mutual, m- mutual stirring up in the faith, and then failure to even pursue maturity privately. Shrinking back, shrinking back, shrinking back. What about us? Have we found it just too hard to digest the meat of the Word? Too hard to train our faculties for discernment and to walk in faithfulness in a hostile culture? Instead, have we done what's easy? The metaphor that he uses here is very helpful. You know, milk will do fine for babies because babies don't chop wood and build houses and fight wars. Adulthood requires us to do mature things. Things that require endurance. What what, what happens to people who try to do mature things on a milk diet? You cannot endure. You, You can't work. Can't build. Can't fight. And so it, it, it ought not surprise us then that there's a further stop on, on the spectrum. One, one that the author writes about in 3.12. Go to 3.12. In 3.12, the author writes, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, now we're going to find in Hebrews a tight connection or tight connections in the author's mind between sin and unbelief on the one hand and obedience and faith on the other. In fact, these things are so tightly connected that he seems to use them as two sets of synonyms. Sin and disbelief and faith and obedience. Those who progress in shrinking back will find themselves entrenched in sin. I'm going to say that again. Those who progress in shrinking back they will find themselves entrenched in sin. Period. Retreat back from enthusiastic reception of of the world's hostility and then retreat from meaningful relationships with other believers and then retreat from personal pursuit of maturity, primarily vibrant digestion and application of the Word and you will, you will find yourself entrenched in sin. And some of us find ourselves there even now. Now why? Is that so dangerous? Well, what does sin do according to Hebrews 3.13? What does it do? It is deceitful. It lies. It lies to us. It lies. And through those lies, it hardens the heart in the direction of unbelief. 
By the context of Hebrews, we know the lies that sin was telling these recipients. The lies of sin were telling these recipients, life was easier in Judaism and just as plausible. That's what it was telling them. Now, why why easier? Because we find that historically, Judaism in the Roman Empire was a legally approved religion, unlike Christianity. And so sin was lying to them, saying, look, Life is just going to be easier for you if you go back to Judaism. And sin lied to them saying, look, look at the Old Testament Scriptures. Look at the Old Testament Scriptures. You were covered. There was a way of salvation. There was a priesthood. There were sacrifices. There was a tabernacle. There was a way to meet with God. Everything was okay. You can leave Jesus and not lose anything. Sin will lie to you, providence. Sin will lie to you. Then other lives may be different, but they'll be there. They'll say things like, God may not be who the Bible says that He is. Your sin will say things like, how, how can we know that the Christian God is the one true God? Maybe the culture's right. How, how can you really know that one way is better than the other? Your sin will lie to you and say, love is love. Wouldn't it be easier anyway to just go with the world? And listen, folks, that's not rationality talking. That's your sin lying to you. Trace it back. If you're hearing those lies, you're shrinking back already. Just like the recipients of this letter. And you can only shrink back so far before you're denying the faith. That's the danger. That's the danger that the author sees. That's why he's writing this letter. It's not that they have a deficient Christology in itself, but the recipients are in varying stages of shrinking back from faithfulness to Christ, and they are in danger of falling away. And Some of us, in the last few minutes, have recognized ourselves somewhere on that spectrum of shrinking back. Have we not? We are somewhere on that spectrum. And so like the recipients of this letter, we need what the author prescribes. He begins he begins to address the danger by communicating our next step, which is that the Christian's foundation is Christ as the culminating fulfillment of God's saving intention. The Christian's foundation is Christ as the culminating fulfillment of God's saving intention. If you're going to stand firm, you need a firm foundation. And the author here argues there's only one. And he proves from the Old Testament, the Scriptures to which the recipients were looking, he argues from the Old Testament that it's Christ. By the way, While you're looking at the blog to see why I'm calling the author the author, this week look for an article where I will will talk about how the author uses the Old Testament here in Hebrews and why we should use it the same way. Now, in this next few minutes, we can't go into everything that the author says about Jesus as the fulfillment of God's saving intention. We'll go deeper in subsequent messages, but let's just get a taste, okay, for for how the author shows Christ as the fulfillment of God's saving intention. Key 
is chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 1, he shows primarily from Davidic royal psalms, not merely that Jesus is the son of David, but that the son of David must be divine. And then in chapter 2, he shows from Psalm 8, God's creation intention to set all the world in subjection to man. And this is nothing new, because we, we know, and, and the original readers knew from Genesis 1.26 that, that God had done this. God created man to exercise dominion on God's behalf. But, but we don't actually see this being played out in our world. It's not perfectly, certainly. And why is that the case? Why is it that we don't see all of the world in subjection to man as God's, as God's image bearer? Because man rebelled against God. Sin entered the world, and the enemy of our souls, the devil, acquired the power of, the power of death. So how is man going to reign over the world when he is now subject to lifelong slavery? That's the big problem of human history. How is that going to be fixed? Well, the author argues that that chapter 1, the Hebrews chapter 1, son of David, became a high priest making propitiation for man's sin by himself dying and rising again. Through his death and resurrection, he freed man from slavery to death and will eventually lead them into the land of promise where they will reign with him. In the meantime, as mankind is waiting for that, that fullness of redemption, Christ's own obedient suffering enables him to perfectly help them endure the difficulties of this life. And so those first two chapters, they set up the whole book, which shows largely through typology how Jesus is the great culminating fulfillment of God's saving plan. Now, typology may be a new word for some of us. What is typology? A type is like an indirect prophecy. In typology, you have a, a person in the Old Testament or, or a, an office or a place, an institution or event, and we call that a type. And that type is intended by God to picture and, and, go, and move toward what's called an antitype, another person, office, place, or institution. And, and the, the, the type escalates toward and culminates in the antitype. The antitype is always greater than the type. That's an important part of the author's argument. And so what we find happening in the book of Hebrews is that the author presents Moses as a type of the antitype Christ. Moses pictures something better and greater than himself, which is Jesus. Joshua as a type of Christ. Christ is better than Joshua. Christ did something that Joshua did not. The priesthood as a type. The old covenant. The sacrifices. The land. The promises. Israel. Virtually every institution, person, and event in the Old Testament. Everything to which a, a, a Jew might cling for salvation. Everything points toward and culminates in Christ. All these types are fulfilled in Jesus and what He does, brings, and gives. And in Hebrews 8, 5, and 10, 1, the author calls these types, he calls them shadows, which is 
a very helpful metaphor. All these things are like shadows which are cast by something, someone in the future, which is Jesus Christ, the God-man. And in the author's argument through much of the book, it is that, look, look, Hebrews, these things, these things to which you're looking back in the Old Testament, these were not institutions unto themselves, but rather they were imperfect shadows that existed for the sole purpose of creating longing for the perfect one who cast those shadows, that perfect one being Christ Jesus. And he points out, look, there were problems with the Davidic line calling for a better son of David. There were problems with the priesthood calling for a better priesthood of a different order. There were problems with the sacrifices calling for a better singular sacrifice. There were problems with the old covenant calling for a new covenant. Rest that was fleeting and temporary. Land that was tiny and earthly. All these types calling out for escalation and fulfillment in an antitype which could only be Jesus. And what he wants them to see is that it is inconceivable to revert from the substance to a mere shadow. There's much high Christology in Hebrews. But it is interwoven with exhortation directly addressing this shrinking back that the people were doing. In other words, he gives all of this Christology in order to address the fact that the people are are shrinking back. How does he do that? How does the Christology address the shrinking back? Well, that's our fourth step. The Christian's exhortation is to run with endurance looking to Christ. Run with endurance looking to Christ. So first of all, I want us to look at each of these sections calling for the people to endure. There are multiple sections warning the people against falling away from Christ. I'm going to look at each of them very briefly. Just just give us a smattering of each of them. The first of these warnings comes in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Here's just a piece of this first one. 2 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You see, he gives, he gives a, a little bit of the gospel, and then he gives this warning. Let's not fall back from this. We already looked at 3.12 and 13, but another, another warning comes in a section that extends from 3.12 through, through chapter 4. And in that same section, we read this in 4.1. In 4.1, he writes, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach. In other words, he gives a little bit more of the gospel, and then he calls them, don't fall away. 5.11 through 6.12 is another lengthy warning. 5.11 through 6.12. We've looked at 5.11 already, but look with me at 6.4. 6.4. 
He says, for it is impossible in the case of those, those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. In other words, he gives a little bit of the gospel, and then he calls them again, look, don't fall away. Turn to 10.26. 1026 through 39 is another warning section. 26 through 39 is a warning section. 1026 he says this, for if we go on sinning after go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Another chunk of the gospel and then he calls them not to fall away. Now 1225, 1225, 25 through 29 is a warning section. He writes in 12:25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. There's this constant drumbeat. Don't shrink back. Don't shrink back. Persevere in the faith. Keep believing. If you don't, there is no salvation. It's just warning, 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 woven all through this high Christology. And these warnings can be terrifying. They should. It's crucial for us to understand how they fit with the Christology. How is he using them? Well, let's go, let's go now to 12.1, which we began with this morning. 12.1. How does 12.1 fit with the the broader context. Well, chapter 11, the, the author shows how the constant testimony of the Old Testament saints was one of persevering faith in the coming Messiah. In other words, the pillars of the Old Testament, these ones that, that Jews might be tempted to look to as examples, they should look to, the author is saying, they persevered by looking forward to Jesus. And so in 12.1, he begins to, to write this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The great exhortation of this book is right here. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. And, and that is not two different things. It's not, hey, let's, let's run with endurance and let's look to Jesus. It, it's one thing. Run with endurance. That is, that is persevere in the faith. Don't shrink back. Don't fall, don't fall away. Do that by looking to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Go deeper and deeper into who Jesus is. Understand Him. Know Him. Cherish Him. Look at His suffering and what it accomplished. And by fixing your eyes on Him, Stay in the fight. Run with endurance. Cross the finish line of faith. 
and receive the reward on the last day. Now, what is, what is that second reason that so many of us have longed to hear this book preached? Well, I suggest that we long for Hebrews because the Holy Spirit is already using it to accomplish the purpose of the book. He is drawing us to the high Christology of Hebrews so that we will be stirred up in the confidence of our hope in Christ and so that we will persevere in faith until the end. Hebrews 3.14, crucial verse, reads this way. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I'll read that again. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That verse means exactly what it says. We've come to share in Christ. That is, we are believers if we persevere in belief until the end. If we continue in the faith, the Holy Spirit uses means to cause us to persevere in the faith. And if in in the past, the book of Hebrews has moved you to love Jesus more and to cling to Him more tightly, you're already seeing how this works. Looking to Jesus moves us to persevere in faith to the end. We read the book of Hebrews and the Holy Spirit stirs up in us this deep sense. Yes, more of this. I need more of this. And so, who who needs this sermon series? Who who needs the message of Hebrews? Is it just that that person teetering right on the edge of saying, I don't want Jesus anymore. Is it just that person? No. You know, some of us this morning might with great confidence say, even even if everyone else here falls away, I would die for Jesus. Some of us might confidently say that this morning. You know who else said that? Peter, just, just hours before denying Jesus three times. Obviously, those who are self-consciously doubting need the message of Hebrews, but so does everyone else. Pastors, Michael, Dan, Rick, John, Jason, we, we need this book. We need this as a means by which the Holy Spirit will keep us in the faith. New believers, those of you who maybe have only been following the Lord for a few months, a year, a couple of years, you need this letter. Mature believers, you need this letter. And, and if you found yourself somewhere on that spectrum of shrinking back, I would encourage you to pray two things this morning. First of all, Father, thank You for bringing this sermon series right now. And second, may Your Spirit use Your Word to have Your way in me.
we must persevere in the faith by looking to Jesus. We look to Jesus that we might run this race with endurance. And so, let, let, let us kill the sin that lies to us, obscuring the needfulness of Christ. And, and let's, let's devour and digest and use the Word of Christ which magnifies Him, drawing us to Him and teaching us His mind. And, and let's pursue meaningful relationships with other believers, stirring one another up to love for and obedience to Jesus. And as, as we're facing the hostility of the world, let's look to the hostility that Jesus endured on the cross as He joyfully looked forward to the reward. And let's join Him outside the camp, also looking forward to the city that is to come. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we'll spend a few moments in silent reflection. And I encourage you to think through under the influence of the Holy Spirit, where might you be on that spectrum? And what would the Lord have you to do with these things that we've heard this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Your Word is true. We thank You that it is always timely. We pray that as we study this book in the coming weeks, months, however long it takes, that Your Spirit would use Your Word to have Your way in us. Many of us have endured the hostility of the world in recent days, in various ways. And it is taking its toll on us. Others of us will endure the hatred of the world in coming days. We pray, Father, for those of us who are enduring it now, that, that the book of Hebrews would, would call us back, that we would no longer shrink back from faithfulness, but that we would, that we would move forward looking to Christ, that we would run with endurance. For, for, for those of, of the rest of us who, who may not yet be experiencing hardship, but who will, we pray that the book of Hebrews would equip us well to run with endurance, that we would not in the future shrink back. Lord, please impress upon all of us how desperately we all need the message of this book. Pray that you would help us. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.